Well, good morning again. All right, uh, come up here, boy. I know. This is my firstborn. And it seems like it was just yesterday that just like Braden there. Oh, thank you. He's going to get a mic. We're going to team teach, me and Mason. Nope. Actually, <laughs> it seems like just yesterday uh, your mother and I were dedicating you. And, uh, and now this is your last Sunday before you go off to college. It is. Yeah. So Mason's going down to a year of E. Cola Bible College, which is uh, hosted at Cannon Beach, and it's a one-year intensive Bible program. Uh, but the, the it does sound fancy because you were fancy. <laughs> Just look at how glorious this is. <laughs> I, I've told so him fancy. he needs to grow his hair because I can't. It's a vicarious living situation. I keep stepping back because I'm making a shadow on your beautiful face. So uh, don't so don't okay. step back with me. But I want to step back. I know you do. <laughs> Uh, and then it seems like just yesterday, I got the privilege of baptizing you. That was years ago. I know. <laughs> it doesn't seem like years ago. It's crazy. And now I'm going to send you out. So uh, I called them up here this morning because, A, I'm really proud of both my kids. They are, uh, Mason and Madeline are both amazing young people uh, with big hearts towards others. And... Uh, I, I really think he's going to do amazing things. I really think God's going to use him. Um, and what we pray when we do a baby, baby dedication and what we pray when we do a baptism and what we pray practically every day of our kids' lives is that they would be fruitful, that they would be able to, once they go out from our home, produce a harvest for the gospel and influence people and uh there was one thing i would say to you almost every day when you go off to preschool or to school or to youth group what was what was my phrase i'd say almost every time be a good friend be a good friend buddy (laughs) and that was i don't know that just became our mantra amy and i uh of wanting to see you be a man that invests in others, and you do that really well. You care about others really well. So um, today in Second Thessalonians, this is actually my intro. Oh, sweet. <laughs> Our goal is that we would be fruit-bearing Christians. First fruits that bear fruit actually was the title that I meant to put on that slide, and I forgot to change it. It still works. But it still (laughs) works. And uh, I pray that you guys would pray for my son. And I'm going to give a quick blessing right now. Lord Jesus, as we send Mason off, um, we ask, just as we asked that very first day he was born and the day he was dedicated, the day he was baptized, and just about every day since, Lord, use him. Use him powerfully and help him to be a fruitful man, that he would have an impact on people wherever he goes. Uh, Jesus, just keep his heart pure and keep his heart directed um, towards you and give him a great love for others that he would truly be a great friend wherever he goes in Jesus name. Amen. Love you, buddy. Love you too, Mason. Well, a father's uh, desire and goal for a child is uh, similar whether you're a physical father or a spiritual father. Paul, as he goes into Second uh, Thessalonians here, uh, begins to really, uh, again, have just a pastoral heart towards these, these people. His desire is that they would be a people that bear fruit, 
that their lives would be so changed by the gospel that there would be a difference to what to the way that they lived. It's really connected to some of the previous texts we've preached on, and we'll talk about that as we go through. But let's turn, if, if you would, in, in your Bibles to Second uh, Thessalonians 2, uh, verses 13 to 17, and we're going to see that God calls us to be first fruits that bear fruit. Here we go. Verse 13, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through, sanctific- through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in that truth. He starts out with, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. This seems to be very familiar to us. He, he said this <laughs> he said a this few times. Back uh, in 1-3, yeah. I think he said it again in, in 1 Thessalonians. He yeah, did. he's giving thanks to God for for the testimony that these people have, He has this divine compulsion to give thanks for them. It's kind of because of their reputation. Saying, yeah, it's weird. It's like I ought to, I have to, I must. If I don't, I'll burst. Kind of a feeling uh, to it. He lavishes this gratitude to God for them um, because he has to. In fact, the only difference between this verse and, uh, and verse 1, 3 is found in the phrase, brothers beloved by the Lord, where beloved of the Lord is actually added this time. And uh, I kind of geeked out on this. If you like to go super, deacon, uh, super deep into Bible study, you might enjoy this. Um, the first time Paul says this in chapter 1, verse 3 he references Deuteronomy 7, 7, 8. So if you've got uh, footnotes or cross-references in your Bible, you might see uh, a reference hitting to De- Deuteronomy 7, uh, 7 through 8. And that's regarding Israel's position as Yahweh's people. Now here in 2.13, the same reality is expressed in this term, loved of the Lord, which is the precise language of the Septuagint, found in the blessing of Benjamin in Deuteronomy 33.12. So uh, the reason that's interesting is that Paul himself was a Jew and specifically a Benjamite. And so as he took pride in that heritage, he actually gave that blessing in these two spots to the Christians in Thessalonica. So again, I kind of geeked out on that and thought that was cool. As he says, my ancestral blasting has been passed down now to you, Jews and Thessalonians. It's really interesting when you look at, for us, like just reading through something like that, doesn't we just pass over it. But when you really get to the nitty gritty of, of the words that are used and the way they're used, you find stuff like that, which is pretty cool. Um, so he gets kind of to the reason for his gratitude here. He says, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved. Now, that I, the idea of being chosen by God, it's not a small thing in any way. In, act, in actuality, it should give us significant joy and, and encouragement as we go through life. And I think one of the benefits and one of the things that it brings with it, the idea of being chosen by God, is the security that, bring, that it brings as well. Now, you remember these Thessalonians, they're all over the place. And so Paul is saying, look, you're chosen by God. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Well, and they weren't saved themselves. They couldn't save themselves. Right. It was God who saved them and chose them as the first fruits. It's also not up to them to keep their salvation themselves. God chooses us. God keeps what he chooses. 
he gets what he wants. So again, the security you're talking about is huge to us, uh, especially in, in direct contrast to the people he just referred to in chapter 2. Those people, God, God gave those wicked over to a great delusion. Um, they were going to suffer. They were going to perish, etc., etc. Paul here says, you are those that God chose, which is a big deal. So he says they're chosen by God. So you kind of ask the question, as what? And we have this interesting word there. He says, as first fruits. First fruits. Tell me a little bit about first fruits. Well, I mean, the first fruits of a crop. You're a farmer. I know. I'm a farmer. (laughs) How many of you guys are actually doing a garden this year? A few of you guys? Okay, killer. Lots of you. Uh, I've never been a bunch of a green thumb. My wife and I kill everything. You would probably speak better about this than us because you and your wife grow well, things. Uh, interestingly enough, my dogs got the first fruits <laughs> of some of my uh, garden this year because I left the door open to the garden. And so they Rook, got in rookie move. all the green beans. We had so many beautiful oh. green beans. And they took them all. And there's something about the first fruits, isn't there? When you when you first get to pluck a green bean or a, an ear of corn or a head of cabbage from your garden, that's that's special and it's beautiful and it's usually, to, I think it's usually the best of the crop. Um, the first fruits concept has been tied to the best of our of our stuff <laughs> today. Uh, we tie it to that in giving. Uh, God says that we should give out of our first fruits, not out of our leftovers. Uh, here, though, Paul, I think his encouragement to the church in light of the the huge eschatology lesson he just gave them about the end times and the Antichrist coming and uh, the delusion, the rebellion, all this kind of crazy stuff that was going to happen to those who were perishing. He says, you guys are the first fruits. You're not perishing in contrast to those people we talked about last week. And they needed to remember that. They need to fixate on that instead of the fear, maybe, of what the end times were going to bring. So if they're the first, the first fruits, that means there's more harvest to come, right? There, there's that's, more people that are being um, called by God. That's also Even really special. Even in the, the time that we live in, in the spirit of the Antichrist, the Antichrist hasn't come yet. And, and so God is still calling people to himself. He's calling them away from sin and away from lies to the truth of what the gospel is. And so he's calling people today out of darkness into light. And we get to be part of him saving others. Yeah. So just like the Thessalonians, I think he wanted to encourage them to say, hey, you're the first fruits, but there's going to be second fruits and third fruits and fourth fruits. The gospel needs to keep going. And that urgency, I think we've really picked up in the text the last couple weeks for the gospel is an urgency he wanted to make sure that they saw. First fruits that bear fruit. Amen. Yeah. Amen. So um, <clears throat> why did God choose the Thessalonians or choose us to be first fruits? Well, it says right there at the end to be saved as the first fruits to yeah. be saved. So you and I, just like the Thessalonians, were saved from God's wrath, from his judgment. Again, all that stuff that he just talked about, the, the contrast. So we're, we're, we're wanting to make sure to take this in context. What we're reading this week Definitely is is coming out of what we read last week. Right. And, and I love how he kind of reminds them how they were saved. He says, through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Hmm. Now, this is interesting, too, because there's a little bit of order here. Um, he says sanctification, then belief. Accidental, 
on purpose. Maybe purposeful. I think so. Well, there are two truths, I think, in salvation that we get confused on a lot of times. We're trying to figure out if they're warring truths or if they can go together. Uh, There's a truth that God sanctifies, chooses, the word he's used previously even in this chapter, that he chooses us, um, and God does the work and the choosing and before the foundations of the world, all this kind of stuff. Gabe even referred to that. Uh, There's also this seeming human responsibility to believe in the truth. So which is it? Is it God's choice or human responsibility? Is it both? Yes. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) As weird as it is and as crazy as that tension is between God choosing someone, it seems like you really have no choice. There is an aspect of belief and free will that comes with God choosing you in salvation. And in God's math, it works. So for now, I live with the tension. I understand both of those truths are in Scripture. To me, it needs to be one or the other. To God, it doesn't. And I'm okay with that. And someday God will open my brain bigger than it currently is to understand it. So there's a a couple really cool concepts here before we move on. Um, First is, is sanctification. That, that what work. does that word mean? Yeah, so it's, it's the work that's attributed to the Holy Spirit and what he does. To be sanctified means to be set apart, to be made holy. Um, and, and so there's really three aspects when you think of, of sanctification, kind of this already ongoing, not yet type principle, right? So already— All three of those things. Yeah, all three kind of are, are happening. So already is you are right now holy because of what Jesus did. Because of Jesus' shed blood on the cross, if you have accepted uh, Jesus as your Savior, his blood, his righteousness covers your wicked, dirty, sinful life. And that seems to be what Paul's talking about here, because he's talking past tense, to be saved through sanctification. It's all in the past tense. So already, now there's a little bit of ongoing. We're constantly also being sanctified in that we are being made holy each day. It was what I prayed for today in our pastoral prayer. I want to be more and more like you, God. It's what we sang about right before that time, to be more like you, to give all my life just to know you. This is the process of becoming more holy each day, which the Holy Spirit does as well. And then there's the third, the not yet. To which is to be made completely holy. And that happens when Jesus returns. There's no more sin. Um, and, and so that will happen. That's a, a not yet. So you could think of those three concepts already ongoing, not yet. Some people say like a, a positional, yeah. um, progressively and perfective. Uh, perfectedly. That's a really good alliteration. So if you want to remember the, <laughs> yeah. the uh, already ongoing, not yet is positionally made holy or, or sanctified, uh, progressively sanctified and perfectly sanctified in yep. eternity. So again, here Paul seems to be talking about the first, but I think all three of those aspects are probably somewhat in his brain. The second really cool thing that we should note before we move on is you've got the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all referred to in your salvation here. So Genesis, even the very beginning of the Bible, refers to the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in creation. Now, Paul says, as you are being made a new creation, 
that God has used Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father chose you. The Lord Jesus Christ loved you. And that's specifically talking about the active way he loved me on the cross. And the Holy Spirit sanctified you. Isn't that cool? Where you see all three uh, of parts of the Trinity. It is that idea that our position before God, it should give us great security in life, in this world, as we go through out each and every day. Um, your social position or wealth or, or family or job or, or possessions, that's not true security. That's not your position in Jesus Christ. Uh, better yet, if you're putting your security in those things, in other humans or uh, possessions, you're going to be shaken just like these Thessalonians were. Because things will fail you. People will fail you. Just like the Thessalonians were being shaken in this time because their security was being found elsewhere. So our, our position and our identity as sons and daughters of God comes from God. That is our identity. So it's, it's through that position and through that identity that we can have great security as we go through this life. So when the troubles do come, we have something to stand on. We, we have promise. We have security as everything is crumbling around us. And that's really Paul's main point in these couple of verses is to remind them of who they are, what their identity is, what their position is, and give them back their security um, as opposed to how troubled we read that they were at the beginning of chapter 2. Now he's going to move from how we were saved and the fact that we're saved to what we were saved to in the next couple of verses. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. To this he, had, he called you so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, Paul uh, presented, again, the, the Thessalonian, Thessalonian unbeliever um, what those opponents of them were destined to. They were destined to perish. And he encouraged the believers that they were chosen by God to be saved. Here now in verse 14, he reminds them of both the means and the final destiny of their calling. The means of their calling, the final destiny of their calling. So the means of their salvation was, as Paul says, through our gospel. You know, if we go to Ephesians 4... Uh, Paul tells us kind of the same thing. He, he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And then later on in, in verse 8 there, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is what the gospel is. That is the good news, that God loved us even when we were completely dead in our sins and in our trespasses. That's the gospel, that he made us alive together with Christ by his grace, not by any of our doing. That is what the good news is, so that by faith we can enter into the family of God. That is the gospel. That is the good news that, that Paul's telling us it's about. It's the most amazing gift ever, ever given. Um, and it's how God has called each one of us who have believed. 
So that's the means. So what's the final destiny for each believer because of our salvation? He says, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this might seem like a nice, innocent sentence, but this is a shocking sentence. The glory of God is no small subject in Scripture. The glory of Yahweh was what Moses asked for to see in Exodus. I think I was like, no. You, no, you can't handle you can't. You can't handle the glory. Turn around. No. Yeah. Yeah. God had to just pass his backside by, and it still, it, it shocked, and, and he was glowing for days. I mean, this amazing thing. It was the glory of God, of Yahweh, that filled the temple and filled the tabernacle while they were traveling. Um, in Isaiah, Yahweh actually says, I will not share my glory with anybody. He was referring specifically to, to false gods. In this verse, the glory of Yahweh is also the glory of Christ, for they are one. So that's a big deal. Did anybody that would say, the Bible never says that Jesus is God's son or is, is God. He's just a really nice man or prophet. Look at a verse like this. The glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word is special. And it says here, too, that because we share in Christ's death and resurrection and what he accomplished there, that we actually get to share in a measure of God's glory for all eternity. Me. You. Now, to be sure, we won't be equal with God. Again, God will not share his glory in the sense that he is God, but he will share his glory with me forever. Somehow, that is not a small thing. It is a huge thing. And it's the eventuality for all those who've been chosen and sanctified and saved by God, by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen? This is a big deal. So you can see Paul's pastorly heart coming out as he's writing this section. I mean, his children, his, his people have been shaken in their minds, and they, they've been alarmed by this false teaching that has infiltrated their church. And so this is why uh, this section specifically on their salvation was so important for them to hear in this time because they were shaken. They were struggling. And so Paul is going back through and saying, no, look, look, you are chosen by God. You are first fruits. You are his children. And so he's going back and he's reworking their their minds in the sense of what they were struggling with. Yeah, if they're if they're armed with this kind of an understanding of their future security, then the Thessalonian believers had absolutely no reason to lose heart over the claims of the false teachers that were coming in and trying to disrupt them. So then, brothers, he says, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So the so then is pretty noteworthy. Um, he's summing up his teaching with two exhortations. So then can be likened to therefore. And when we see a therefore, we ask, what's the therefore, therefore? So then uh, refers to this entire subject that he's written. You could also, um, the Bible includes this cool thing called an inclusio. A lot of biblical writers. You love your inclusios. I do love my inclusios. It's like another piece of bread. It's like you started with this piece of, of rye bread, and the rye bread has a certain taste and texture to it. I don't think I would start with rye bread. Why would you not start with rye? Sourdough? Sourdough, maybe. Okay. 
Yeah. Or well, croissant. we can agree on sourdough. Croissant. So. croissant. <laughs> this is America, buddy. We'll speak no croissant it's language. It's so good. <laughs> it is good. It's flaky. It gets in my beard. They're very flaky. So you got this wonderful sourdough bread with its texture and its flavor and its taste. And then you get all your meat in there. And then just to remind you, you're still eating sourdough bread. It's on the, on the bottom of the sandwich, too. So an inclusio in Scripture is going to have a lot of the same tastes and textures here and here to let you know that the subject is kind of summed up in there. So if you go back to, where is it? Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says this. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. Notice the same language there. Hold to the traditions you are taught by us, either by a spoken word or a letter. It's the sandwich. So it lets us know that all of this stuff that he's been talking about is one subject, not multiple subjects. And now, as he says, so then, he's getting kind of to a conclusion. So now what? Yeah, you have this contrast, right? You, you have this eventual destruction of the wicked versus this eventual glory for the believer. That's pretty much the meat and the cheese of, of the sandwich. Yeah, if you, look at, if you look at some of this contrast, it's really meant to give us comfort to, um, to, to be able to stand firm in our identity, not to be shaken, not to be troubled, to know who we are. So the perishing, he uses phrases or words like refuse to love the truth. The saved are saved by belief in truth. Right. And he says that the perishing, they uh, pleasure in unrighteousness. The saved are being sanctified more holy. And then you have this activity of Satan going on. We got the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then condemnation, lastly, there with the perishing. Versus glorification, where right. we actually get to share in the glory of God. So he says, stand firm. Stand firm in your faith, in your identity, in, in who you are, in the eventuality of what is to come when Jesus comes back. And also stand firm in the traditions that you were taught by us. Yeah. Now, when he's talking about the tra traditions, he's not talking about just traditions. He obviously means the gospel, what he preached both in person and in his first letter. And anything that contradicts his, those teachings— they should be able to be refuted by truth. Um, and I think you and I are in even better place than the Thessalonians because we've got uh, Old Testament and New. We've got the entire written word of God, every letter written by Paul, inspired by Holy Spirit. The writings of John, of, of Peter, of Luke, Matthew, Mark. We've got so much. We're so blessed. But I think, unfortunately, we live in a time where biblical and theological literacy are grossly undervalued. Uh, there are churches across America that simply don't teach the Bible. May we never be guilty of such a thing. We've got churches that are just social clubs that are aimed at making people feel good and sending them off. But the church must be focused on one thing, and that is the revealed words of God. That's why, again, at the Grace Works, we're committed to studying and preaching straight through the Bible. So we don't get to choose the topics aimed at what we think you need. God shows us what we need. And te teaching God's truth, that's where your pastors will spend a significant amount of their time, and we should. 
And if we ever stop doing that, rebuke us or fire us, period. Because that's what we need in churches across America. We have no authority. The Word of God has authority. Let's keep going to it. Well, I think there's a, a challenge for us to consider here. And I think that is that are we doing our part? Are we studying the scriptures like we should be? Not just leaning on the pastors or the, the overseers to kind of take care of that and, and to rightly divide um, the word of, of God for you, but are you doing it on your own? Mm-hmm. Are you um, using God's word like you should? It's almost like in America we're, we're used to specialists these days. Emily, uh, Pastor Emily, we like to call her, and I were, we were talking about that this week, that we're in this culture where we're used to uh, a doctor knows medicine, but how in the world a doctor doesn't know how to fix his car or, or grow a cucumber. He, he pays somebody to do that, right? You pay somebody to do that. We're, we're used to being specialists in our field and paying somebody to be specialists in their field. And yet that's not okay when it comes to scriptural knowledge. We, it's not okay just to say, well, my pastor kind of knows that area of theology and eschatology. And my pastor will understand that question and be able to answer it for you. That's not okay. Uh, the scripture says that we're all to be saturated in the Bible. We can't be okay knowing little about the Bible because pastors and missionaries aren't the ones that are battling this culture of rebellion for the most part. It's you that are battling the culture of rebellion, the spirit of Antichrist. It's not just your pastor who's called to share the gospel with your coworkers and your family and your friends. It's you that's called to share the gospel with your family and your friends. It's not just the pastor who Paul is challenging to stand firm and hold to the teachings of scripture he wrote this to the whole church in Thessalonica it's you and I that need to accept this challenge so we need to we need to be a people who value biblical knowledge and scholarship and theology and it and we cannot become satisfied with ignorance it's going to ground us Paul says in the face of monstrous opposition and the anxiety of life, the difficulties that are coming our way. We've got to have God's word. Let's move on to, to verse 16 here. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. <laughs> now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Um, Paul kind of goes in and he says... He kind of gives this, yeah, this pastorly prayer, this imperative of what um, he wants to happen. Yeah, he just kind of gave us his command, his exhortation, his, so then do this, hold on to the teachings, stand firm, be strong, etc. But yeah. he's not just going to leave you with a, with a command. He's, he goes right into prayer. He kind of just almost seamlessly flows into prayer, which I would, I think I have a lot to learn from that. If my conversation flowed seamlessly into prayer more often, I think I might get that spirit of what we've talked about before, pray continually, mm-hmm. where we're not ever really done praying. And unfortunately, I think I get myself in this mind frame where my prayers have to start with something formal and end with something formal. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask thee and beseech thee, in Jesus' name, amen. And that has to be prayer time. When Paul's just like, uh, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself yeah, and just kind of 
goes into it. I want to be that kind of prayer. It's interesting, too, because his prayer, um, it, it's significant in this this context because he, he begins with this attitude of, of gratitude, if you will, yep. kind of like he has um, all throughout both books of, of Thessalonians. And so he's asking something of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and God our Father. Um, but if you look at the praise that, that he's talking about and that he's requesting, he says, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. So he's got a request, but like you're saying, he just flows into praise, too. He loves God. He's so grateful for what God has done. I love that. So it's it's the love of God that, that Paul's talking about here in verse 16 that motivates him to shower his grace down on us and, and help and help us helpless humans, if you will. And so with a relationship um, that comes with what we're made for, he says eternal comfort and good hope. Mm, I like that. I do. I think we all want that. (laughs) If we were to say, what do I want my life to look like? I think we would easily say comforting and full of hope. He says, so we can say, um, because of this good hope, because of this comfort, we can say, praise you, Father, for your love and grace. We can say, praise you, Jesus, for the the comfort that I have despite my circumstances. And praise you, Spirit, for the good hope I have uh, for the future. It's, again, he, he starts with a praise thing. It's what you've done in my past that helps me to praise you now in my future. And it's his grace in the past that, that dictates um, how I live today and tomorrow. So that then he gets kind of to the request part. Um, he says uh, that he wants God to comfort their hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So after praising God, here's what I want you to do, God. Comfort these Christians' hearts, establish them in every good work and every good word. Comfort our hearts. Do we need that? Yeah. I mean, he <laughs> if you remember back to First Thessalonians four, First Thessalonians four, he talks about that. He he said, Don't grieve as those without hope. Um, so he, acknowledging that we do grieve. We as humans will go through times that cause us to grieve, that cause us sadness. But don't we as believers, as chosen by God, don't grieve as those without hope. But so we feeling, can have good grief. Remember that sermon? Good grief. Yeah. So the feelings aren't wrong. The, the, the difficulties of life needing to be comfort isn't a bad thing, but we need to find our comfort in the right place. Um, and I think I've experienced loss. Uh, I think we all have. If you've lived any amount of time, you experience loss and you have grief. But there's also grief over the choices of others and what they've chosen to do and the way they've chosen to hurt me or themselves. Um, I've got grief over my own choices <laughs> at times. And I'm like, man, why did I do that? That was, that was the worst decision I could have made. Uh, we've got grief over the values of this world. It's in rebellion. We've got the spirit of Antichrist at work. And we need comfort from all these kinds of things. So that, that's one of the reasons I love uh, Holy Spirit's name, the Comforter. It's often attributed that, that work of God comforting to the Holy Spirit. And I think if, if you look at it that way, you actually see the Trinity represented in this final verse, too. You've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, yeah, we often need comfort. But there's something else he says uh, that he wants to pray for that we need, and that is for our hearts to be established. Right. We, we don't need to be blown away or, or tossed by the winds of, of life, as James describes it, if you remember back to our study in James. Yep. But 
we have a firm foundation of truth that establishes us as believers on firm ground. And so as we're established um, and engaged in the process of sanctification, that ongoing part of sanctification, there is fruit that shows off God's glory in our lives. And, and it should appear in our good works and word, as he says there in verse 17. We should be first fruits that bear fruit. So let's look at, look at that. Um, our good works and then good actually also applies to word. So our good works and good words. Um, now, first of all, we've already talked about Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 today. Uh, our works can't save us. They, we can't do enough good things to earn favor with God. We rely on God's grace, and, and we have faith that can save us. Uh, once we are saved, though, even though good works can't save us, once we are saved, things, things should be different. Um, our, our entire trajectory changes in life. And we become kingdom ambassadors, God's ambassadors and representatives in this world. We ought to be a people that are recognizable even by our good works, Scripture talks about. Um, In some ways, I hate the term full-time ministry. Like, I'm in full-time ministry. This is my vocation, my job. But in some ways, I hate that term because I, I think that every single believer, according to Scripture, is in full-time ministry. It may not pay your bills, but it's who you are. It's who I am. And if you have not accepted that title yet, <laughs> accept it today. Uh, accept this role that God has called you to, the, the wonderful responsibility that it is to produce good works for Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. That, that word, and you kind of said it at the end of, of verse 17, good work. It also applies to words. So good words. Um, we should be people of good words. Amen. What do our words say about who we are and our identity, our position in, in Christ? I fear what my words sometimes say about who yeah. I am. But Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. <laughs> so uh, I, also, I like to call us grace workers because we're workers of grace, and it's our church name. But we're also supposed to be grace worders. <laughs> Let your speech always be gracious. We should be grace worders. Yeah, that's a good one, man. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm a dork. Um, I embrace the dork. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I think for a lot of us, a lot of times our words are not grace-filled. Um, they can be bitter and salty in the wrong way sometimes. should be salty in a good way, right? Yeah. But our, we live in a society that's constantly outraged, constantly offended, constantly angry about something. I am indignant. <laughs> indignant yeah. How dare you, sir? But what God calls us to be as Christians is different. Our, our speech, our words should be different. It, it should be salt to unbelievers. Our lives should be lights to unbelievers. Um, and, and so we should be winsome with the saltiness of our words, if you will. Uh, yeah, there should be, I think, an attractiveness, right. and not just offensiveness. Um, obviously, the gospel will offend many, 
but we need not be offensive for offensiveness sake. Uh, the question to ask myself is, do I bring words of life with me wherever I go? Whoever I speak to, do, do, my li- do my words reflect the life that I've been given through Jesus Christ, the, the positive hope, the comfort, the groundedness that I'm supposed to have established? Paul prays that our, our every good word and our every good work would establish our hearts, which I think should challenge us in a massive way today. Um, that both in our conduct how we pray for each other and ourselves should be different. If this is how Paul prayed for those believers, maybe that's how I should pray for myself too and how I should pray for each of you, that our works and our words would be beautiful, would be establishing our hearts in truth. Um, it's a really challenging text. I mean, God spoke to me all week through this, that we're to be first fruits that bear fruit, that we're to be a people that have lives that are different. And that it should be uh, my identity in Christ, who he's made me, the way he saved me, and what he saved me to should ground me, should establish me in some way. We kind of wanted to end with a little challenge. We talked about this this week. We don't often do responses where we ask you to raise a hand or stand up or come forward or things like that. But as we talked about it, it's like, it's not a bad thing to do from time to time, to be stretched a little bit. Because I think in this text we see a call to be different, to be salty, to be established, to be firmly grounded in truth, to actually know what the Bible says, and to go out and be ambassadors of the Lord, that our works and our words would be different. Again, this is my desire for my son. This is my desire for Braden. This is my desire for each one of you is my desire for me, that we would say I am in full time ministry. And I'm ready for God to use me and I'm willing. So this morning, here's my challenge to you. Are you in full time ministry? Are you ready for that role? Are you ready for that responsibility? Do you accept it? If so, pray this prayer with me right now and respond.